Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Fatanis Defense. Masters of Darkness. Fatanis is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. The PD Pro series is the world's smallest and lightest night vision goggles built around the Fatana 16 millimeter filmless 4G image intensifier tubes and their hybrid filmless 18 millimeter image intensifier tubes. These ultralight, ultra compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. The PD Pro line consists of the PD Pro M 16 millimeter monocular, the PD Pro B 16 millimeter binocular, and the PD Pro Q panoramic night vision system. Patanus Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co op. From backyard gardening to large scale farming and everything in between, your local co op has what you need to be successful. Since 1936, Alabama Farmers Cooperative has provided high quality products and friendly service to community members and local farmers. With over 60 locations to serve you and 85 years of experience, you can count on the co-op. For more information and to find a location near you, visit www.alafarm.com. I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here today with my co-host, Butch Theory. And today, Butch, we're going to be talking about grasslands. When I think about grasslands, you know, I just think about something out west somewhere, something I get to see maybe once a year. I don't really think about the Southeast when I think about grasslands, but what we're learning is that really grasslands have, have been a part of the ecosystem for all, but about the last couple hundred years. Yeah. And should and still be a big part of it. There's a lot of reasons why you as a landowner need to pay attention to grasslands you may have on your property or consider restoring some or all of your property into this grassland habitat, whether you're in this for the money, in this for the wildlife, there's a case to be made for understanding the grasslands that are native here to the Southeast, whether or not you got them on your property. Uh, we're going to be learning all about that today. We're going to be talking about identifying them. We're going to be talking about whether or not you can restore what's there or recreate a new on your property. And, and we're also going to get into some of the economics behind this. Like, how does it all get paid for? How's it going to make your property more valuable? To do that, we're talking with Jeremy French of the Southeast Grasslands Institute. Jeremy, welcome to Hunting Land, man. First off, uh, before we really dive into uh, what it's going to take to either restore or recreate, or, or if we can find some preserve grasslands on our property, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with SGI. Awesome. Yeah. So my name is Jeremy French. I am uh, the Interior Low Plateau Ecoregion Coordinator for SGI. Um, I grew up in South Florida in the Everglades fishing. I think I got my first fishing pole when I was like six years old and I'd run out to the bay all the time after school and I'd get these cut up shrimp from our local hardware store for like $3 and I'd shove like entire shrimp or entire squid onto these hooks, not know what we're doing, just throw it and cast whatever we can. Um, grew up mostly fishing my whole life. Um, living in like South Miami, there's there's not a big hunting culture. But then I went off to college and instantly picked up hunting. Like it was second nature and I, I've been hunting ever since. I'm a big public land hunter and big private land hunter. I hunt out West most years. Um, if it has to do with with wild game, I'm, I'm generally in some type of pursuit. And yeah, I, I work for SGI as, as an ecologist. I also work for Quail Forever as a coordinator. Um, so I do a lot of private lands work for Quail Forever. And then I also do a lot of ecology, grassland research, restoration um, for the Southeastern Grasslands Institute. Well, I'm looking forward to kind of getting your thoughts on how you think, you know, native grasslands fit into the landscape for, say, a guy who owns land and likes to hunt. Uh, but before we jump into those questions, tell us a little bit about the Southeastern Grasslands Institute. So the Southeastern Grasslands Institute is, we, we've been around for about five or six years now, and we're really on the cutting edge. We've been growing constantly. And all of our science and effort 
are around educating not only the public, but other conservation folks, other ecologists and biologists about the fact that a lot of the southeastern United States was historically grassland, you know, and depending on where you live, that grassland may look somewhat different. But we're talking about, you know, millions and millions of acres throughout the southeast that was oftentimes lost before it really could be studied because these systems were the first systems settled uh, upon European settlement and the first th areas that, you know, Native Americans were pushed out of, we didn't really get a good idea of what these could really be like. And for the last couple hundred years, the prevailing thought in conservation was that the majority of the Southeast was forest, which is, is just not true. It's factually incorrect. My boss, uh, the founder of, of SGI, Dwayne Estes, he's always talks about growing up in Giles County, Tennessee, and the myth of the squirrel, and that when he went to school, you know, his history teacher t taught him that when the first European settlers got here, a fox squirrel could go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi um, without ever touching the ground, from tree to tree to tree. And now we can look back at that and kind of laugh, and we laugh about it all the time because it's not true. For sure, we had some old growth forests, and for sure, we had some forested ecosystems. But just off the top of my head, I mean, the entire coastal plain was all, you know, short uh, longleaf pine savanna. And from that, you know, you get into the Piedmont, which was a large prairie. We've got savannas all over Appalachia. You come inward from that. I mean, we had millions of acres of prairie, contiguous prairie from northern Tennessee all the way through Kentucky um, called the Pennyroyal Plain, the Black Belt Prairie. It just goes on and on and on. There's so much information there that we obviously know that that it's not true the south wasn't all all forested but it's taken a lot of piecing together not only science um, but history and culture to figure those things out so that might be reading a map you know that was you know done in the early 1600s by french explorers that says you know some french word for prairie or grassland and us having to realize like hey they're they're talking about there being giant grassland. One of my favorite examples is uh, a property that we often work on in Alabama that is in the Black Belt. And they have this place and on their property that's called Wild Horse Prairie. And the reason it's called Wild Horse Prairie, because in the 1700s, a traveling pastor coming through the South came upon this prairie. And he wrote in his book because he was not only was he a, a traveling pastor, a minister, but he was an amateur naturalist. And he said, I came upon this rise and for as far as my eye can see, all I saw was was prairie. All I saw was grassland. And there were all these wild horses um, on the on this grassland. Well, we know that the Spaniards brought over wild horses and it took, you know, a very long time for that quote to re-arise when we we're working on this property down in Alabama, it's 11,000 acres that we're able to actually go to this very small piece of what was historically wild horse prairie and help restore it. So it's a lot of cutting edge, like historical research, but also, you know, botanic and ecological research as well. You think about things like, you know, Audubon talks about shooting prairie chickens in pretty much Northern Tennessee. You know, if you sit, you know, if you just take that statement at face value then you're like, oh, you know, that's cool. You know, he, he was a hunter or something. But when you think about what a prairie chicken needs to, to have its lifestyle, then you're like, oh, wow, that means that there was quite a bit of prairie, you know, intact prairie in that area because, you know, prairie chickens are very selective and, and they're even in today's world out West, they're not doing great. So it's a mix of like the science and history and ecology. Um, and it's really fun. <laughs> Um, I get really passionate about it, obviously, um, but that's what, all we do is, you know, just try and educate others and stay on top of the science there. That's very cool, man. It sounds like, I mean, how how do you even find some words from the 1600s? Are you just talking to grandpa's, 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 grandpa? You know, how how do, how do you even go about finding something like that? You know, the place in the in the black bed, the wild horse prairie. I mean, we're doing all types of things. Obviously, we're we're talking to you know people, and we're we're talking to tribal members. We're we're trying to take, um, you know, oral accounts when we can. We're also looking through archives. We're reading, you know, the manuscripts of the original explorers of the land. We're we're really delving deep 
one of the people who, who pioneered this in, in Tennessee, his name was, you know, Clarence Coffee, And he started doing this work way before I was ever around. And he started, you know, finding these little tidbits in newspaper articles. This is back before Google, where uh. you had to go into like a library and like pull all the, the newspaper articles talking about like tar kilns and like all these different things in this area that he was trying to restore. So we we use the entire like breadth at our disposal of between talking to people or looking through records, looking through historic aerial imagery. The entire United States was shot aerially in the 40s, you know, so it doesn't get us all the way back, but it gets us something. And we look a lot at like old maps all the time, these maps that are like pre-settlement or, or very early on and try and piece together things. And it's it's not always as pretty as we'd like it to be. She at least got a place to start. Exactly. Very cool. Jeremy, I, you know, I, I love hearing about the history of it. Me too. Because I've I've always enjoyed history just, you know, for, for one reason or another. But also think about, you know, I think about my property when I hear about these things. And I'm sure Butch is the same way. Absolutely. It makes me wonder, you know, it makes me wonder well, what what was my property like, you know, 200 years ago? What what was historically here? Uh, and that's one question, right? Is like, I mean, I'm in the coastal plain. I probably had most likely uh, a long lease savanna like what you're talking about. But once we kind of, you know, all that's fine, right? Like we can kind of dive into this and maybe figure out based on our soil types um, or based on, you know, our, our geographic location, whether we're in that coastal plain or the Piedmont, like you talk about maybe what our property should or uh, once was or should be, so to speak. But really the question then becomes like, why? Why should we care about what was happening 200 years ago? You know, I'm looking at my property going, all right, this is, this is an investment. I need to grow timber here. You know, I, I've got uh, a use that the the value of what I'm growing there is going to make me money that is going to make this a good investment over time. And hopefully this is something I can pass down to the next generation. That being said, when you start to think about these native grasslands, why should I as a landowner really care about either restoring these or recreating these or preserving these if, if I've got them on the property? That's a really good question. And, and it's a really deep question. And everybody's motivations can can vary drastically, right? I'm a big sportsman. I'm a big outdoorsman. And obviously, if you, t- if you tell Joe, it'll give him more turkeys. He's in. He'll do yeah. whatever. He'll do whatever. Doesn't <laughs> it even will matter. give you more turkeys. <laughs> All right, for, sure. <laughs> for sure. For <laughs> sure. All right. In um, the podcast. We're done. That's right. <laughs> turkeys love savannas, man. They, they, they really do. But, but that's a good point. When we look, oftentimes, you know, as sportsmen, we think about deer, turkeys, you know, depending who you're talking to, maybe quail, maybe woodcock, in, you know, in the southeast. And we look at right now, the big hot ticket item in the southeast is, you know, how turkeys are starting to kind of falter off and, and they're starting to decline. Mm-hmm. Well, I often look at that and you can marry that up. So we reintroduced turkeys, their populations exploded. Um, they did really good for a really long time. And now in a lot of places in the Southeast, they're not doing so hot. And there's a lot of studies out there that are showing they're not do- doing so hot because they don't have prime nesting habitat, right? They're, I often, you know, I'll kick nurse, I'll kick turkeys up, you know, out hunting when they're sitting on a nest in the middle of just the most close canopied forest in the world. And their nest is right out open in the, right out open in the world. And you think about that from a nest success standpoint, what are the nests that are going to be the easiestly, most easiest to find if you're a raccoon or a possum or a coyote? It's those nests that are out in the open. Whereas if you've got, you know, prime habitat where you've got these intact grasslands, you've got these savannas, you have this matrix of different habitats on your property, that that hen can go and nest in the best possible habitat where she's got escape cover, where it's a lot harder for these nest predators to find her habitat. The same thing goes for other species as well. You know, I often talk, I talk to a lot of deer hunters. I'm a deer hunter myself. There's, there's nothing that, you know, I love turkey hunting. It probably a little bit more than deer hunting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I love deer hunting too. I look forward to the fall. When I sit and I walk through a lot of deer hunters properties, the the things that I'm accustomed to seeing are food plots, which are fine, close canopied forests, which are not fine, 
and there's a, almost an imbalance of work, right? So many people who own land for, for hunting, they put thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars um, into food plots a year. When we look at, by the time, you know, by the time we're utilizing a food plot, unless you have, you have a spring food plot, most people are growing food plots to, you know, put on antler growth, right? They're, they want to shoot the biggest buck. If your food plot is a winter food plot or a fall food plot, well, you're not putting any weight on your deer. You're, you're just trying to attract them to an area, right? Which, which is important. We all want to have success. But when I look at some, a grassland habitat, right? Whether it's a savanna or a prairie, in one acre of that prairie, this is a very broad assumption, there's probably about a thousand pounds of forage per acre. Now, if I compare that to the run-of-the-mill closed canopy forest that is probably on 90% of people's properties throughout the southeast, there's about 100 pounds of forage per acre. There's nothing. There, there's no, there's not thick fawning cover. There's not nutrient-dense cover. So we're not providing uh, mama does, you know, really critical forage when they're, they're nursing. Um, we're not providing really quality dense cover at all for escape cover and we're not providing great forage throughout the spring months all those things to me are something that me personally as a deer deer hunter i put the most of my time into you know i i spend my spring and summers on my own personal property really uh, burning doing tsi doing hack and squirt felling to create this savannah and prairie matrix i spend very little almost no time on food plots now i'm not saying that that's for everybody but that's just my personal split and then there's there's also the deeper conversation right coming you know i was an adult onset hunter i fished my entire life i just didn't have access to hunting in the city (laughs) where i grew up um and i i would say i grew up in a city that's not anti-hunting you know there's a lot of people from all over the world that come there you know they shoot a lot of pigs in florida they shoot some ducks um but their deer are kind of the size of of puppy dogs in South Florida. So it's not a big draw. But when I got pulled into hunting, you know, as a sophomore in college, one of the big things that drew me to to hunting is being a a, a conservationist, right? Mm. Being tied to the land, making decisions. Yeah, I want to shoot deer, but I also want to conserve and preserve this. And I want to think beyond those game species. And that's where restoring these grasslands on private land really goes the furthest, right? We can have our big deer and we can have our turkeys and we can have our quail and we can have all of our game species, but we can have everything else as well. And we can leave a legacy on that land for the future generations. And that's a big driver for me. And it's a big driver, I think, for a lot of people is I want to do this the right way, you know, and how can I do that and find that middle ground where I'm able to still make money because we want our farms to make money. And we want to still be able to to shoot deer and turkey, but we also want to do this in a way that best mimics what is supposed to be on our landscape. And finding those middle grounds is really critical. And at times it's very difficult, but I think it can always be done. A good example of that is I work with a lot of people who, who in my area, loblolly is not native. It's native to some of the Southeast, but it's kind of loblolly plantation is exploded, right? And a lot of people would look at that and say, oh, man, we have this non-native tree. And I often work with these landowners to go in and thin their loblollies. You keep your loblollies. Let's thin them out. Let's get them to that savanna or woodland stocking so we can get that flush of native forbs and native woody vegetation, you know, Chickasaw plums, brambles underneath. And then we have the savanna structure. Is it perfect? No, it's not. But it's definitely a lot better than a lot of other situations. It's a lot better than, you know, 100 stems per acre or something like that. So right. it's about finding that middle ground. And when it works, if a landowner comes to me and he says, you know what? I want to recreate the best, most pristine grassland in the world. I can do that. But if a, a, a hunter comes to me, he says, man, I really got to make money off this property. I'm just trying to figure out how I can make money while just doing the best that I can. We can find some middle ground. We can find some intersections there to make it work for both parties. And and that's really important. I like the idea that it seems like most landowners fall on this continuum of, you know, some of them are on the opposite end of the spectrum. They want maximum wildlife habitat. They want, you know, the most perfect uh, restoration of what, quote unquote, should be there. 
Uh, and then there's other guys that are on the other end of that spectrum. And they're like, I want maximum income off this property. Uh, I really don't have much put much thought into the wildlife aspect of it. And, and they're really just trying to grow a crop of some sort uh, off of that land. And then a lot of us, I think, fall somewhere in the middle of that. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I want this to make some money and it needs to, you know, it needs to be a good investment. But at the same time, like there's some value in giving up some immediate income to produce something that is going to stand the test of time and be something that I can be proud of, something I can hand down, something that is going to do something uh, for the greater good. But something I'll add to that is, you know, from a, uh, a, as a, as a land sales professional myself, uh, there's a growing number of people and I meet them every single day who don't care too much about the money aspect of owning land. And they really are buying this land because they, they want to see, uh, that, that longleaf pine savanna like you're talking about. And they're either willing to do it themselves, but a lot of folks, especially folks that are, you know, have gotten on up in years, they've got more money than they do time. What they want is they want to get something now that's already there. And I see a big opportunity for the, you know, the folks that are, are younger, just getting into land ownership to be able to start to do and implement these practices and, and, you know, recreate or restore these uh, areas on their property. And as they get into their later years, their property is going to be more valuable and will have made more money total due to the, the recreational aspects of that land, um, the scenic aspects of that land. They'll make more money on it that way than they will by cutting timber or leasing it to, you know, uh, for crop rents and things of that nature. That is definitely coming. It's not right for everybody. It's not every single piece of land, but I definitely see that coming. My first question, you know, when I'm thinking about this is it sounds awesome. You know, like I'm, I'm definitely in that, that camp of, of wanting, of uh, enjoying restoration ecology. If I'm looking at my property and for anybody listening to this is thinking about their property, how do they identify if they have or once had native grasslands on their property? So there's a lot of really great, I can't say, oh, you know, Google your property or something like that. Like <laughs> it's never going to be that clear. It's going to take a little bit of work, a little bit of investigation and maybe a phone call. One of the things that I often look for are these storyteller species, right? So if I'm in Alabama and I'm walking through a, a forest and I see a big old blackjack oak and some shortleaf pine. Well, that that tells me both those species are savanna obligate species, right? Those trees will not reproduce unless they were there when it was a savanna. There's hundreds of species like that. Post oaks, blackjack oaks, you know, shortleaf pines, longleaf pines. You can look at those species that you have right now that are kind of longer lived, you know, and may still be present on the landscape and use them as storyteller piece species. If you're a little bit more adept botanist, um, you can look at some of the forbs out there. Some of these forbs, like these orchids and, and these flowers, they are savanna species. They're, they're indicator species. Um, so learning the indicator species for your area is, is extremely important. And, and something that I stress to, to every hunter out there is, man, plants aren't that hard, and they'll make you a way better outdoorsman. So if you can take you know, and learn five plants a year, you just really learn them and understand their habitat, you're going to become way better of an outdoorsman out there. You know, understanding if you can identify a Chickasaw plum thicket, well, you know where there's going to be some pretty prime bedding out there. And a really good tool that, that a lot of people don't know about is an app that you can download on your phone that's called iNaturalist. And iNaturalist was developed by Nat Geo. You download it on your phone, you can go out and take a picture of plants, animals, and it'll ID it for you. It's generally about 80% correct. But the really cool thing about it is if I'm an expert in that field, it pings me or I can go on and say, hey, you know, Joe, your ID actually here is wrong. It's probably X species or your ID is correct. Um, and you don't have to do anything but take your picture and upload it. And I have access to all that. That data is then also used as a query that like me as an ecologist, if I'm working on a specific species, I can go to Nat Geo and iNaturalist and say, hey, can you give me all the metadata for all this, this 
the the research grade vouchers for this. Not everything you upload is going to be tagged as as research grade. It has to go through a, a couple criterions of like it's got to have good GPS, it's got to have good photos. But that's a really useful tool. Beyond that, knowing what your eco region it was historically like. You know, knowing that you're in in the longleaf pine or you're in the coastal plain, well, that gives you a good rough idea. Now, within the coastal plain, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of micro communities. But knowing, hey, I'm in the coastal plain, like that's a good starting unit. And then it's about becoming really becoming stewards of the land, becoming doing everything that you can to research. And maybe that means reaching out to an ecologist at SGI or somebody at or in in another organization like the Longleaf Alliance or Quail Forever to come by and, you know, have a conversation with you. Um, My phone um, is is always open. I take calls all the time where landowners like, hey, I just found this on my property. And I'm like, send me pictures, you know, let let me help you walk walk you through it and and just get some of those answers out there. There's a lot of tools out there, but but those are kind of of the best out there. My favorite is just have a conversation, you know, give a give your local botanist or biologist a call because they're always going to be wanting and willing to help because that's you know, that's what we do, what we do for it. it it's not for the money. Every ecologist out there, we're, we're doing it because we love it. So they're going to want to help you out the best they can. And if they don't know the answer, they know how to get the answer or get you to someone who does know the answer. You know, uh, what you said earlier really resonated with me about kind of this uh, imbalance of time spent in terms of land management between food plots and then the rest of your property. And I'm certainly guilty of that. And I think some of that comes from years of hunting on properties that weren't my own, you know, and you just was, don't know. You don't know what you know until you know it. I mean, right. And you uh, grew up, we, you know how we grew up. I mean, you yeah. plant the food plots and you go hunting. They tread, they, you know, thin the timber every seven to 14 and then 21. And then that's what we do. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have the ability to control those things at that time. You know, it was pretty right. much, we could plant our, you know, fall food plots and that was the thing that we could control. And, um, so we did, and we think about grasslands. I'm, most of the time, it seems like you guys are, are talking about warm season grasses. I mean, when I think about food plots, I have started planting, you know, summer food plots, planting in the spring. Uh, but I'm planting a variety of different grasses and legumes and brassicas and broadleafs and things of that nature. When you talk about these warm season grasses, do they have a role during the cool season? Because that's, uh, if we're talking about hunters, you know, most of the time they're going to be more focused on what's happening during hunting season. Maybe that's not where they should be focused, but that's the current state of things. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the cool season, a lot of these grasses, they're obviously not really providing super valuable forage. Some of the, some of the forbs still are, but one of the biggest, you know, draws for, for the cool season is that bedding and that, you know, that thermal cover, um, that escape cover, you know, having that out there and I've, I've got to be, you know, forthcoming. I learned how to hunt in Iowa. You know, you're hunting a mix of agriculture and big prairies out there a lot of the time. So understanding that these bucks and, and, and these does, they want to bed in the thick cover. They, they want, you know, that security out there. They're still thinking, that we've got bears and mountain lions and all these predators out on the landscape. Um, so some of the most beneficial, you know, cover that you have out there um, from a winter perspective is those, you know, warm season grasses purely from being a bedding cover, fawning cover, um, escape cover is, is really important. And they still do provide some forage out there. A lot of forbs will still stay vegetative um, and, you know, every deer has a different diet, right? Like they have these general things that they need, but deer can be quite picky at times. So they'll, they'll pick around at, at some things. And there are some cool season species that when you get into some of like these wet grasslands that stay vegetative year round, but we all know that deer tend to make a shift in winter from, you know, a lot of forbs to they start eating like buds off of trees and they start eating these mass producing and fruit producing fruits. Well, the highest concentration of like fruiting shrubs are going to be in a grassland, 
right? Most fruiting shrubs can exist or don't exist in these closed canopy systems. I think of things like trees like persimmons, our white oaks in the southeast, our, our post oaks, you know, some of our red oaks. All these trees, to some degree, need an open landscape. All of these shrubs like Chickasaw plums, Mexican plums, beauty berries that really have like really high nutrient value, um, hazelnuts, um, pecans for, you know, winter forage. They're for the most part, either a true like prairie to like a savanna species. We often get lost in this like conversation as these like high fluting ecologists between like, oh, is this a grassland? Is, you know, our quail grassland birds or shrubland birds? Well, I always make the argument, I'm like, show me the shrubland in a, in a closed, gr- closed canopy second growth forest. Well, it, it doesn't exist, you know. Right. But if you walk around the edge of a prairie and you see, oh, we've got Chickasaw plums here. We've got persimmons on the edge that are fruiting. We've got, you know, muscadines. We have all these fruiting vines and shrubs. They're really quality forage. I mean, I the the first time, my first public land deer that I ever shot, I was hunting public land in Iowa. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was hunting the edge of a prairie and a savanna. And this deer came up, this buck came up and started messing around with some fruit and an Osage orange tree. And, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And that really like it changed things for me. We talk a lot, you know, in the southeast about this push for grassland conservation on public land, for example. And a lot of the, you know, the hunters in the southeast, they, they grew up hunting big timber. So it's almost like terrifying to them to like try and figure out how to hunt a prairie or a savanna. Like if you figure out the edge communities, you figure out these these shrubbing species that are putting off tons and tons of tons and tons of mass, you'll kill a deer all day long. (laughs) And, you know, they tend to like think of I target persimmons all the time for hunting. They're they're great if they're putting off fruit that really centralizes deer a lot. And then I would. I'm going to like put on my my future premonitions hat here. Probably in my lifetime in the Southeast, there will become an initiative that's called the White Oak Initiative, right? And not to go off on a tangent, but throughout the Southeast, we see really, really bad white oak regeneration or oak regeneration overall. And what that is a product of is mesofication. And what mesofication is, is we're allowing these cooler, wetter, moister species to take over not only our grasslands, but our forests as well. The majority of the Southeast is what we call a pyrophytic community or a fire-adapted community. Oaks are very much a fire-adapted species. Now, they're not so much fire-adapted like the wiregrass or the longleaf that they won't exist without them. Some species won't. But when we stop the, the you know fire and open open like grassland savanna woodland settings we're just not seeing oak regeneration either and so there's so much mast out there most people don't realize that like the, the oaks putting off the most fruit the the shrubs putting off the most fruit they're going to come in that savanna and you know prairie setting interesting so jeremy you know you guys are all about grasslands by whatever means necessary it sounds like and some of those means are going to be either preserving what you've got restoring what you've got or recreating uh, on your property so just go into that a little bit in the difference between those three things yeah so you know you you say it really well sometimes we describe it a little bit differently as like stabilize um, for for preservation and what we mean by that is Occasionally, rarely these days, we have gra- what are called grassland remnants. Now, what a remnant is, it is a grassland that was probably never plowed, never really disturbed, and it's managed to persist into today, which is exceedingly rare. A lot of times our grasslands, we're talking about their sub one acre in size, and they're oftentimes, you know, Sometimes they're the corner that the plow couldn't get, right? Because it, it turned weird or it was, you know, a savanna that that just succeeded the forest. We're able to locate these occasionally or landowners locate them for us or on public land, you know, other people locate them for us. And then we're going into that system and figuring out what is wrong. And what I mean by that is oftentimes these systems, they are covered in fescue 
for example, right? And if we're able to see that that remnant structure is still there, but we just have this fescue problem, well, we can go in and treat that fescue pretty easily. Or in our savannas or woodlands, oftentimes they've been encroached on by trees, right? So they've become a closed canopy system. If we're able to identify a savanna remnant, we can go into that system and remove some of the un undesirable trees, a lot of our ear maples and stuff that have just kind of come in and encroached on that system and return it to a savanna state. A lot of the times, the, what these remnants are really missing is fire. And from a private landowner perspective, the cheapest tool that any of us can utilize when managing a property is fire. We're talking about roughly $10 an acre. I can't do anything on any other property or, or my own for less than $10 an acre. And the, the cost return benefits are just absolutely phenomenal. And it's fun. Yeah, it is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I just recently, uh, um, we had a burn recently, and I, I got to put a drip torch in the hands of a few of my coworkers for the first time. You know, they're they're more on the botany side or the, the seed ecology side. And seeing them just light up as we were, you know, burning this meadow, it it, it is something that is so ingrained in our DNA that you don't realize it. You know, it's like that first time you, you harvest an animal, that first do something, you realize how ingrained in our DNA it truly is. Man, fire is deep, deep ingrained in our DNA and it, it's it's an awesome tool. Yeah. So that's a lot of what our preservation looks like is we're, we're finding these remnants. We're either trying to, to expand them, we're trying to fix them up, but largely we're trying to stabilize them so they don't get smaller. Then once we're able to stabilize them, that's when we can start talking about restoration. So when we're talking about restoration, generally we are talking about a grassland remnant that we are fixing. We're in the process, right? We've got this car. It just needs a new engine or something. And sometimes the fixes are really minor. You know, they're just a tune-up. They're an oil change. And we're like, this is a, this, this is a functioning eco ecosystem. Sometimes they're, they're quite labor intensive, you know, in the southeast, we have some of the most invasive species pressure um, because we we have such diverse climates that oftentimes it's a lot of trying to spray and control invasive species. In our savanna remnants, a lot of times it's just going in, returning fire, and removing the overstory of non-desirable trees. Um, every system is so different, and every situation is so different that it's hard for me to give this like blanket application. But restoration is is we're fixing it right. We're we're going in, we're performing surgery, and we're trying to be very surgical because what you have is extremely special. It's extremely valuable. Now, when we go to recreation, it's not that it gets easier. It's that now we can take off all gloves, right? When we're in the restoration setting, we have to be very targeted and special because we're dealing with something that's so unique and precious. You're a museum piece, right? We're, we're touching up the Mona Lisa. We, we don't want to use any outside paint or anything like that. We want to be as precise as possible. When we get go to a recreation, it's a lot more like, hey, we've got these tools. We're going to use everything. I work with a lot of, you know, agricultural producers, a lot of hunters, where we're taking things out of row crop and we're restoring them or recreating them to prairie or grassland. Oftentimes we do this to, you know, old pastures, fallow fields, just areas that would have historically been grassland. They've been plowed. They've been had every improved or modified seed that was available through the 90s thrown out onto them. You know, Johnson grass, fescue, Bermuda grass, um, Kogan grass, you name it. They have those out there. So we're going out there and we are utilizing generally a, a mix of herbicide, targeted herbicides um, treatments to kill all those invasives. Once we get them all killed, we'll usually burn them off. And then we're planting that with local ecotype and local genotype seed. Where they're available. And we design everything from the seed mix to understand what was historically there, what is commercially available in the market for us to utilize. Um, we work a lot within you know farm bill programs often to do that. But it really, we're able to take the gloves off and make something happen. It's a lot. I wouldn't say it's easier but it's not nearly as complex as restoring a remnant, but remnants are also that much more special. Yeah. It sounds like you kind of got a clean slate whenever you're recreating, you can kind of just kind of do your thing instead of having to work around the confines of something else. Exactly. 
Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, so there's strategies we've talked about for landowners to to be able to implement something like this. We talked about the iNaturalist thing. First, you got to understand what you have, right? Um, yep. Try to understand, do some research, talk to people, the storytelling pieces on your land, kind of identify what you have, whether it needs to be recreated, restored, or a total recreation. Fires, we talked about fires being a big part that the landowner can do. What did I miss? What else can landowners do to get involved and restore and recreate these native grasslands? What do we miss? Yeah, so there's tons of cost share programs out there. It, it really depends on the setting. So like we've got tons of money in CRP that if you're a farmer and you have some non-productive areas on your farm that really you're sinking the most money into, we can utilize CRP to pull those out of production, actually save and make the farmer money and restore those to a grassland setting. Let's say you're not a farmer um, and you're a hunter and you just have some land that's not in row crop, right? And you're like, hey, I want to restore this to grassland. Well, we have pro programs like Equip um, or the or CSP, which are both acronyms for basically conservation programs under the NRC NRCS that we can go into those systems and we can make that habitat more beneficial and we can restore it. There's a big component that on private land that there's lots of pools of money out there, depending where you are, to do this type of work and to, to do this work really well. And not only by by utilizing that programs do you get access to the money, but you get access to a biologist. Oftentimes, you know, I, I meet a lot of outdoorsmen that are are very well qualified. You know, they can run a tractor, they can run a drill. But having a biologist that in your pocket to, to call them up and say, hey, what do you think about X? It, it gives you that next level step where for sure. they're going to be priceless knowledge. Oh, for sure. Priceless, priceless knowledge. And sometimes it's even from the equipment standpoint. You know, I go out and I calibrate drills and sprayers all the time for landowners. <laughs> <laughs> not not as much anymore now that, you know, I'm an ecologist. But when I was, you know, a starting biologist, I did that constantly. It was just out there. And those types of things and the little tips and tricks that you just learn and pick up in the field, um, they become really invaluable. And all we want to do is share those with landowners. There's there's so much information out there that we can never really cover at all. That's definitely uh, a big deal to be able to bounce an idea off of someone who's been there, done sure. that. I feel that way all the time on my property. I'm like, I wonder if I did this. I wonder if I did that. You know, And I don't know which way's up uh, in a lot of cases. I want to do the best for the overall ecosystem, you know, for, yeah. for the wildlife, for the economics of it, you know, for the next generation. And some of this stuff that we're talking about doing is I'm never going to see, you know, the final result of, and the inverse of that is true. If I make a mistake in some area, I want to, I don't want it to be something that I'm never going to be able to correct either. Yeah, um, for sure. So having that ability to to reach out and talk to somebody like yourself and, and who's who's trained, who knows what they're looking at, who's seen it done right and wrong, uh, is certainly a benefit. And I think if if we've if we've left anybody with anything today in terms of recreating grasslands on their property, uh, it's it's that hopefully they will reach out to someone like you and and someone like uh, SGI. Just get started. That's what yeah. you have to do. It's just right. we, we, this is the second podcast we've done on the kind of native thing. And you just got to get started. You need to put and it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. It's just taking a little bit of effort while you're there to dig into it just a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to try and be better about it for sure. Well, Jeremy, um, you know, you've done a good job of, of representing SGI today and, and really talking about what landowners maybe need to hear. Uh, but really, I, I like the idea that this is something that can benefit them no matter which part of that that spectrum they're on uh whether they're a hardcore hunter and they just want to have the best hunting or they're just a, a full-time investor and, and they just want you know the most economic impact off their property i still think there's a place for this it sounds like there's a place for this uh for for any one of those people uh or anywhere in between if folks want to find out more about sgi you know maybe reach out to someone locally who understands their area uh and what's going on from a grasslands perspective what's the best way for them to get in touch yeah the the best way is is you know obviously follow us on on all social media south southeastern grassland institute um we all have access to all of our socials so just getting on there if you shoot one of us a message we'll see it um and then also our our website 
you know, we have coordinators and biologists stationed all across the Southeast. So chances are, you know, we have someone that at, at very least could, you know, correspond with you and talk to you about your very specific property. And, you know, you said something there that that's really important to me. We're going to meet everybody where they are, you know, and and that's really important. So no matter who's out there, you know, who's listening to this, whether you're you're a farmer, you're a hunter, you're a fisherman, or you're just someone who loves habitat, you know, we're going to meet you where you're at and we're going to help you. And we, you know, we may try and pull you a little bit more to the native side here and there, <laughs> but overall, we're we're going to find out what works for you and help you out any way that we can. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of the businesses that make this show free for you every episode. Uh, This week is brought to us by Great Days Outdoors magazine. If you're frustrated with typical hunting and fishing magazines and tired of reading content, then for guys that are up in the north or up in the Midwest, check out Great Days Outdoors magazine. Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't fish or hunt in your home state. You can pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and it will help you become a better Southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, or you can save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And also brought to you by the Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. Finally, a trail cam viewer that actually works. Lowdown's high-speed trail cam viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Lowdown is a dedicated viewer slash photo manager made for one thing and one thing only. Fast, uncomplicated viewing of your trail cam images and videos. Lowdown makes viewing large numbers of images fast and easy. It allows you to easily delete individuals or groups of selected images. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also buy the Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops, because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. Man, Joe, I think my biggest takeaway of this was, you know, you and I and, and whoever's co-hosting with me on the Alabama Saltwater Fishing Report, Richard and those guys, were always trying to, you know, push for conservation and one thing that really stuck out to me was he was talking about, Jeremy was talking about meeting people where they are on their journey. That is so important. Right. Um, not everybody is an ecologist and a native grass expert like Jeremy. Um, I, I'm just good to, you know, get the tractor crack sometimes and get the tractor crank sometimes and plow <laughs> the field. You know what I mean? I'm not worried about what's there necessarily. Right. But that was really cool. We're always talking about, you know, meeting people where they're on their journey, not overwhelming them with too much information, yeah. but uh, somebody like you and I that, you know, we're just trying to make the land better than where we found it and how we found it um, yeah. kind of in the middle ground. And you just have to meet people where they are, whether somebody's just starting this process or they're, you know, 75 and they're set in their ways, you can help them a little bit too. So that's, that was really cool. What I picked up from Jeremy. Yeah. That's a definitely a good reason to give them, give them a shout, you know, because you, you're not going to necessarily just have to do it their way. I mean, they understand and they've dealt with people, from all walks of life, all yep. different mindsets. And if you want to look at what you've got, first off, understand what's there. Decide if if some type of restoration or recreation of native grasslands fits into your overall land management plan. You can make that call and it's not going to cost you anything. You know, it's just really going to, uh, you're going to learn something from it. And you may end up really making your property better in a lot of different ways. And, and it may not harm you know, your ability to grow timber, if that's your thing, or do some farming, if that's your thing. It's really worthwhile in in my mind to just be thinking about all the different ways you can make your property enhanced for that next generation. It makes it a lot more fun to be a landowner too, to have a mission behind what you're doing out there. When the tractor breaks down, it's not like, here's another uh, repair bill. It's, it's, you know, all right, we got to get this tractor fixed because it's a big part of my, my native grassland you know, uh, restoration, let's get it, let's get it back up and running. And I like the meeting people where you are message too, because that's something that all hunters need to hear too. I see it 
year after year after year. He'd have been a nice one next year. Yeah, quality deer management. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that if that's no, where you are. No, of course are, not. You know, but I know But don't that, bash me because I'm not there. That's right? the biggest thing. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I wasn't, you know, like I may be perfectly fine passing up a three-year-old, you know, eight-point and letting him go and – uh, and, and I don't worry about it, you know, it doesn't yeah. keep me up at night, but I killed a whole bunch of deer before I oh, got yeah. to that point. And, you know, like my wife, for example, my boys, they're just getting into hunting. If she goes out, she can shoot whatever she wants to shoot. Yeah. If it makes her happy to get that hook. That's right. If it makes her happy, I'm gonna let her do it. And, uh, and she's got clear path from me. That's for sure. So that's meeting somebody where they are. Uh, yep. You got to let them evolve into it. Really cool stuff. Y'all go check out the Southeastern Grasslands Institute online. They got a really cool website, a bunch of different resources, and see, you know, what kind of grasslands should be in your area. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to 773 770 4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list and wherever you are listening to the podcast, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Sunland show is brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. They now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters, and also Southern Seed Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients for your deer? Check out Southern Buck. Your deer will love it. Visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. Mallard Bay Outdoors. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Built by sportsmen for sportsmen. Mallardbay.com. Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a full-service facility that sells new and used boats and motors. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also Alabama Ag Credit. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com.